Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Steve Wildey on the show today from the Vetri family of restaurants in Philadelphia. Hello, sir. How you doing, Levy? Nice to see you. Thanks for having me on. So uh, you beverage director for you know fairly large group of Italian-themed restaurants uh, quite often in, in the Philly area, but uh, how did you get there? I mean, uh, were you always in restaurants, or what was the story? Not always. So long, arduous process. I was born and raised in Northern Ireland. Okay. And I moved to the States in 92. I moved to Pittsburgh. Where were you eating in uh, in Ireland back in the day? Ireland, you know, it took me a long, long time to realize it, but Ireland has a really, really great culinary tradition. Awesome dishes, awesome food, but it's very kind of quiet, very restrained culinary scene there. It's, you know, if you go out in Ireland, you're typically going somewhere international. You're going to like an Indian restaurant, or maybe you're going to like a Chinese restaurant. Or I remember it was a really big deal back then, uh, maybe like 89, 90, the first McDonald's opened in, in a Belfast and that was a huge deal. And it was like a nice restaurant, you know, like you're going to have to celebrate, you go to McDonald's. No way. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah? Yeah. And so we went there. A happy meal really was a happy occasion. Oh, it's the happiest, yeah. It made you forget your... Your, your woes? Your Irish Irish? Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> and so... Were the and fries then, good at least with the, the potato? <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is, this is actually, what we needed for thousands of years. It's actually all they had. was just different just types potatoes. of fries. <laughs> <laughs> the Happy Meal box full yeah. of fries. Exactly. And, then, and it was a really big deal when the uh, the Pizza Hut opened up. That was a That was a, a big deal, deal for me too. And that was like, that was like a sit-down restaurant and you had a server. So that was an even bigger deal. But... The food scene there was really driven by, I think, home cooking, you know, so people yeah. wouldn't go out to Irish restaurants and go out to a pub, maybe have fish and chips, but at home, and I didn't realize it, and it, it made me realize, I think, a long, long time later when I started working for Mark's restaurants and seeing Italian food and how Italian food is made and how much goes into it, but how simple it is, I realized how much of a snot I'd been to my mom for years and years, you know, because you go through these progressions when you're a kid and you think... All right, well, McDonald's is great. How come, how come I'm eating these stews at home? And how come I'm eating these braised meats? And you know, why don't we have hamburgers at home? And right. then, you know, like a few years later, when you get into like a, a nicer restaurant, it's like, how come you've been serving me meat that's not medium rare? And where's, you know, where's the, like the veal demi-glace and all my, my food, mom? Right, right. You know, and so finally, when I, when I started working for Mark's restaurants, I realized that, you know, 
my mom had been making all these incredible meals from scratch. You know, I remember being a little kid and sitting in the kitchen with her, you know, four or five years old and her baking breads from scratch and making meals that took four or five hours, like incredible stews, shepherd's pie, all this stuff that, you know, was kind of lost on me until, you know, until I got into the restaurant world a little bit more. It's kind of like growing older and then you realize you had James Joyce on your side. You're like, oh, well, we, oh, yeah, I didn't even realize at the time, you know, we had Joyce. and yeah. Exactly. So you get to the United States yep. and you, what happened? Like your parents moved or you, why did you move? Yeah. So my dad was uh, offered an opportunity to transfer within his company. We worked kind of international business things and uh, the company's headquartered in Pittsburgh. So we talked about it as a family, actually. It was really cool. You know, we kind of sat down around a dinner table one night and said, you know, we have this opportunity to move. Do you guys want to do it? You're like, and how many McDonald's are in Pittsburgh? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I think every kid in every country growing up is like, I want to live in America. I want to be a movie star. You know, I want to be a director, whatever it is. So we were all like, hell yeah, let's go to America. And uh, so we moved to Pittsburgh. And... Uh, America's great. I've learned to love it, but it was not the uh, the movie star land that I yeah, they were making a lot of movies at that time. <laughs> when I got off the yeah. plane, I was not you know after you saw by Rocky the fifth time. You're like, oh, there's not another one around here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think you know, like, there's probably few places more frosty and foreboding than uh, and intimidating to a 12 year old kid with a a goofy accent and you know, kind of a a scrubby looking kid to begin with to be transplanted to uh, an American middle school classroom. And uh, so that's why, probably why I don't have an accent. It's it, gone pretty quickly. I mean, was there an Irish community in Pittsburgh at that time? Or is there an Irish community? In Not really. You know, uh, Pittsburgh doesn't have too much of an international scene. And I was amazed when I moved to Philadelphia just to see how much of an Irish presence there was and just how much of a diverse presence there is in Philadelphia, you know, which is fairly close to Pittsburgh when you look at it. But Pittsburgh feels, I think, just like... If you were blindfolded and dropped there and you took the blindfold off, you'd maybe think you were in Indiana as well as you'd think you were in Pittsburgh or anywhere close to the East Coast. Kind of more Midwestern than exactly. Eastern Seaboard. Yeah. And surprised actually when in Philadelphia, just how much Northern Irish, I guess, uh, resentment kind of oh, resided really? there. Yeah, is just, that true? Yeah. So, I mean, Northern Irish is... Is weird. that just because of House of Pain or is there other I think reasons? it's mainly because of House of Pain. <laughs> But, I mean, when you walk into a bar in Ireland, you know, you say you're from the wrong neighborhood, wrong whatever. You know, it's a big scene. So, amazed, amazing to me to, to come to Philadelphia and, and, you know, meet a guy from Northern Ireland. Be like, oh, my God, I'm from Northern Ireland. Grew up in Lisburn. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Oh, really? You know, like, yeah. so. Well, I see you're wearing a green sweater today. So, right. I feel like you're already, <laughs> you've worked that out somehow. You're like, I don't see a lot of orange on this dude. <laughs> Is that, it's amazing that that kind of still lingers, though, in the expatriate it, community. It's unbelievable. My parents, actually, you know, I realized it later in life, too, a very romantic story. They were split, one Catholic, one Protestant, and got married in the 70s when, when it was not cool to do so. And uh, both came from kind of really hardline families as well. So, you know, hardline Protestants on my mom's side, hardline Catholics on my dad. And they didn't get along well at the beginning. You know, so the story goes, and, you know, great kind of testament to, to people just not understanding each other's cultures that now they're, you know, tight as can be, the families are, are really interwoven. But up front, it's like a Catholic. So at Pizza Hut, was there like a dining room for the Catholics and a dining room for the Protestants? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, exactly. You know, it's the Pizza Hut in the Protestant neighborhood. And, you know, that's who went there. Huh. So, you, you know, you, somehow you kind of got involved in the restaurant thing. Hmm. How did so that come around? when I moved to Pittsburgh, uh, I started working for a friend's restaurant 
uh, when I was maybe 15 as a dishwasher. Okay. So my friend's parents owned this place, a really cool little Italian place um, in the suburbs in Pittsburgh that's still there called the Tuscan Inn. And uh, immediately just loved that scene in the restaurant, loved the hustle of it, loved the pace of the restaurant uh lifestyle you know, being in the, the kitchen talking with chefs you know getting my balls busted and uh getting to dig into prep work here and there and just you know just the scramble of washing dishes i really really liked and i think i you know kind of put my head down and got into it and, you know i was 14 15 years old and eventually they uh they asked me if i'd like to be a busser and you know so i got really really into the idea of being in the front of the house and the same kind of hustle just working like non-stop from open to close and Fancied myself, you know, quite the busser where, you know, I learned this trick where I could pick up 10 water glasses off a table at a time, you know, all five fingers in each hand. and Oh, yeah. Super classy. <laughs> yeah. And Still use that one a lot, yeah, do you? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Only when I'm showing off. And so... A little tougher with the Riedel. Like, <laughs> oh, look, I just broke four of those. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Bang them together. And so, you know, just really, really connected with that and, you know, loved... Immediately, that kind of element of service, just helping to hustle through a dining room, get table to reset, get people down, you know, loved it, like loved the feeling to get a compliment on filling somebody's water glass, you know, just like, oh, man, you, you know, my water glass has only been half full all night. And, you know, that kind of thing struck a chord with me when I was, again, 15, 16. And just, uh, you know, um, I worked another job in high school, too. And guess where it is? McDonald's. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did uh, about a year and a half at McDonald's while I was also uh, busing was it, tables. Was it as good here as it was there? I'm asking. I mean, was there any quality difference? Uh, yeah, big, big time quality difference. You know, I think very obviously, you know, just how uh, McDonald's is perceived here. And I don't know if I had it in my head as, you know, that, that kind of beacon on the hill for restaurants because, you know, we had that association in Ireland. But uh, just a really fun job. You know, just great friends work there and, you know, yeah. service your age as well. And exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. Ate all the, you know, the, triple quarter pounders I could and mm -hmm. um, but eventually you know the uh, the busing thing turned into a, a waiting gig you know when I was 18 and uh, was that kind of a big transition for you like more talking to people stuff it was yeah you know I was very much like the uh, the shy busser who would you know get the shaky voice talking to people when they ask questions about whatever about me about the food you know which obviously I didn't have any clue about and uh, so when I became a waiter you know I was Definitely a big transition to to be that you know face, go up to a table, tell them about specials, whatever. And I remember there was one guest in particular who was this uh, Monsignor from the neighborhood, uh, like a priest guy and you know, really nice guy. I came in a couple times a week, you know, so I built up a rapport with him, kind of you know got familiar with with chatting with tables through him. And I was always amazed that he would order a scotch. He would get a, a Balvini, and it was thirteen dollars. And I was like. My God, people spend $13 on a drink at a restaurant. This is amazing. Like, this world blows my mind. And, uh, you know, so I waited tables there for, I don't know, six months or so, and then uh, went to college uh, out in Philadelphia and uh, just kind of kept up the waiting tables. So you, so you left the, the Pittsburgh scene? And I you, did. What, what college did you go to? I went to Drexel. I was originally slated to go to uh, State College which is where my brother went and just kind of assumed like I'd go there Penn too. Penn State State College? Exactly, yeah, Penn State, so the State College campus. And, and uh, what was the change-up? Well, I got this really, really fancy letterhead in the mail from Drexel. Like, So I was, I was slated to go to Penn State, you know, that September. You'd and, been accepted to Penn State. Yep, accepted Penn State, kind of like, all right, done deal, that's cool. And then I got this really sharp, 
really cool letterhead from Drexel with a nice letter saying, come check us out like June that year. But it was more about the actual typeface? Oh my God, it was like, I was like, well, these guys got to be, I mean, they're not Ivy League, but they're probably right there. I mean, this is like This really is cool. symbolic. <laughs> <laughs> what did it look yeah. like? It was just, you know, like dragons and oh, see, really the, fancy, like medieval. Irish thing. Uh-huh. Yep, yeah, exactly. You're yeah. like, it's Beowulf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's my people. And uh, so I looked into it a little bit more and it turned out they had a really, really cool international studies program. And, were, were you interested in that? Uh, I was, yeah. You know, so my, my career path, you know, when I got into college was I was thinking I would get into international affairs, diplomacy. You know, I'd studied French through middle school, high school, really liked it, really connected with languages, liked Spanish in high school as well. And uh, Had you been to the continent at the time? Or? Um, yeah, just you, a little bit a little growing bit. up. Yeah, not tons, but, you know, we take uh, little family vacations to France here and there every couple of years. And uh, so, yeah, just love that idea. You know, it felt like I had some kind of like a, a an attachment to the international community just by, you know, moving from Europe to America and really fancied the idea of being like a diplomat someday. And uh, Drexel actually had, you know, for a big like IT and uh, engineering school, had a really cool little international studies program, you know, tiny, but uh, run by a woman, my advisor, who was, you know, really passionate, really lit that that department up. And so... Early on, you know, so I accepted to Drexel and, you know, kind of got on a, a career path to be a Fulbright scholar was the plan. Okay. And my advisor was, you know, pushing for it the whole time. And, you know, we kind of, so I got a, a basic kind of groundwork with a, an international studies major. It's kind of like being undeclared for five years, uh-huh. you know, so lots of different stuff. But I, I, I took a few internships and tried to get some groundwork in, you know. Nonprofit. I worked for the Templeton Foundation for a bit. I did worked with a big IT company in their marketing department. I did uh, an internship with uh, a small IT uh, company that actually ran a dating site, and I got to uh, basically just edit um, nude male pictures of you know user submissions for awesome know, and just <laughs> clip out the uh, the naughty parts. You'd be amazed at how many. Like would get actually submitted. It's like a, an unbelievable. Proportion. How many of those people were senators? <laughs> like, was that part of the international yeah. relations thing? You're like, oh, see, this uh, this guy is actually in government. Yeah, it was actually so. It was a disproportionate amount of, of nude male pictures or a picture of a man holding a fish. That's that's what guys oh, submit really? for their uh, for their profiles. And this is kind of pre social media. I thought it was just me. <laughs> and then so I uh, my last internship and kind of the culmination of trying to get into that. that that international diplomacy thing was uh, an internship with the European Parliament. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so that took me to Brussels. And, uh, you know, a couple things got in the way at that point of, like, taking that final step to get to the, the Fulbright stage and, they and found you know, the making pictures that with application. You and the fish. Exactly. <laughs> I'd been dipping my pen in the company ink. <laughs> <laughs> so they... I but, I mean, Brussels, though. I mean, what was that like? Well, that's the thing. You know, Brussels is just such an incredible... Uh, multicultural community, multilingual, you know, I, I did my best to connect with the French language, it was a big part of being there, but also, you know, working in uh, the European Parliament for an Irish MP. That sounds awesome to me. It was great. It was really cool. And, and he was an awesome guy. And uh, it was actually right when I got there, uh, 9-11 happened. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, I've been there for two weeks and 9-11 happened. And uh, so it was an exciting time to be in politics, an exciting time to be working with a parliamentarian, just because there's so many things happening, you know, on an interna- international scale. And it seems like this is important. It did. And like, international relations is kind of crucial right now. Well, you know, it was it was funny because through that 
and it was such an exciting time. I just found the politics part of it boring. Really? You know, and I was really shocked because I would kind of setting myself up this whole time to, to get into this, you know, international politics world. And, you know, the day-to-day just wasn't gripping me. You know, I couldn't connect yeah. with it. And uh, at the same time, I was meeting other people on the Fulbright path and they were, you know, seemed like they were on an American exchange program just hanging out, you know, like, you know, that, that study abroad year that you hear about, you just go and like whatever. Drink a lot. Exactly. You know, and they all seemed on that same thing. I was like, well, you know what? That's, Oh, maybe it's not that valuable to me. And uh, the third thing that really got in the way was just Belgian beer everywhere. You know, like the moment I got off the plane, I went into a, a cafe and said, hey, you know, just give me something typical, local. And then they gave me a, a Rodenbach. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a Flemish sour ale. Yeah. Just like every, Grand Cru or the straight up? Straight up. And uh, everything in but there. But before just, the pasteurization days? Exactly, yeah. And so, yeah, Rodenbach's had kind of a, a wacky history back and forth. But then it was great, great stuff. And... Real, you know, I was shocked at just having a beer that was that layered, that tasted like wine, that like vinegar, like, wine, yeah. like, you know, tasted like steel, tasted like fruit, earth, just, you know, really blew me away. And I just got immediately in, entrenched in the Belgian beer scene and, you know, I think drank my, my way through everything I could, visited Cantillon and just got hooked on everything Belgian and, uh, you know, Got into work probably later and later some morning. Yeah, so, yeah. Kind of slipped on the. Uh, oh, you missed your meeting with the ambassador. <laughs> oh, well, no big deal. Like Dalai Did Lama comes back the... a, a lot. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. <laughs> He's very understanding in person. <laughs> Super understanding. He yep. understands human frailty. <laughs> but and... but you're like, but I found this great new, you know, ice block. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you get back to the. St- I mean, Philly has some Belgian beer. Oh, yeah, Philly is, you know, kind of a, a, a beer mecca in a lot of ways, I think, in, in the, the U.S. entirely. And um, I think one of the big reasons that Belgian beer exists the way it does in the States is uh, Monk's Cafe, which is just a legendary beer bar, cool, tiny little pub with, you know, I think the first place in America to have, you know, 300 Belgian selections. The reason that a lot of Belgian beers come into the States, uh, Tom Peters, the guy that owns the place, is knighted in Belgium as, you know, a beer guru. And, you know, the reason that Duval comes in and draft, the reason that Russian River sells to Pennsylvania, you know, fairly exclusively, Tom Peters at Monks, you know, kind of created that Belgian beer scene and just, you know, a big part of the U.S. beer scene. So we're lucky that it was in Philly. Um, so you could access that a little bit. Exactly, and yeah. I think uh, Vetri, you guys have some, some, some beer. I mean, it seems like a good list. We do, yeah. When I got to Vetri, I was amazed to see that uh, Jeff Benjamin, who'd been running the program there and uh, running the front of the house and the wine list, everything, it had put together a really incredible Belgian beer list, and it wasn't what I was expecting at all. And, uh, you know, chefs drink beer when they go out to, to, you know, nicer restaurants, at least they did back then, you know, when Vetri was opening, 98, 99. And, uh, you know, it made sense just to have, if you have great great wines on your list, you know, and I think a lot of restaurants are just starting to come around to that. You have amazing wines. Why serve Stella Artois and Heineken and Blue Moon or whatever, you know, you know. Because you wouldn't serve that equivalent in the wine side. Exactly. Yeah. And and Vetri, you know, definitely seemed ahead of the curve on that. So how did you find yourself at Vetri? I mean, you you got back to Philly and, and then what happened? So I was in Philly waiting tables for a while and, uh, you know, post-graduation, trying to figure out what I could do with my international studies degree that, you know, I, I got a lot out of, but again, it's kind of like being undeclared, a little bit unemployable in that sense. And, uh, you know, starting to fade on the the political 
career I'd kind of been, you know, framing for myself. And so uh, I had a friend who was working in a wholesale food company in Philly, and he uh, mentioned there's an opening. So I figured, you know, this is great. I'll get out of the uh, the restaurant scene, but still work with food and, uh, you know, kind of get off my feet, you know, stop working those like 12-hour days. Like specialty food kind of stuff? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it was a, a, a full-line wholesale distributor, but they did, uh, they actually, you know, when I got there, we're just starting to develop a specialty cheese program, olive oils, you know, just kind of finer foods. So they actually brought me on as the customer service manager and let me run this department, which was just kind of getting started. So I actually had a great opportunity to to dig myself into the cheese world and really, you know, get to know everything about cheese and, and develop a real love for cheese, uh, olive oils, you know, everything along those lines, chocolates, things like that. And uh, I was working there for a year or so, and I struck up a really uh, great coordinate, a, a strong connection with Michael Solomonov. Um, and the great thing about this job is I got to chat with all these amazing chefs, you know, and kind of develop a little bit of Because that's who you're selling to. Exactly, yeah. And uh, Michael was a good friend, and, uh, you know, we got along really well. And he said, you know what, you should, you should sell food to Mark Vetri. And, you know, that name was you know, definitely illustrious in Philly at the time. And, you know, I was like, well... I don't know, man, that's, you know, it's intimidating. And he's like, oh, no, you should, you should call him. You know, he's a great guy. See if you can sell him some stuff. And I was like, all right. So, you know, started off uh, and actually Mark became one of my favorite accounts. And, you know, it, you know, the place is tiny. It's Vetri's 30 seats. And it's the so, uh, original Lebec Finn, right? Exactly. Yeah, so tiny little townhouse. And so Mark would call up and order, you know, three gallons of milk, you know, a couple of cartons of eggs. And I would, uh, you know, he'd be like, make sure the, the milk is like fresh date. So I'd be, you know doting over this account like you wouldn't believe i'd go back in the warehouse you know be like guys this is this milk expires on the 18th you know let's there's stuff from the 19th that's got to go on the vetri order and just you know freaking out doting over it i had a big problem with with that i had to order milk for a sushi restaurant because i was the beverage director and they made me order everything and uh, frequently you would get stuff that was gonna like expire the next day (laughs) and i was like what what yep Exactly. So, and, you know, so I would just make sure that everything was perfect on every single Vetri order. And, you know, we, we ended up getting a, uh, a pretty strong rapport going too. And, you know, I really liked working with Mark and, you know, I kind of eventually lost the nerves over talking to such like a big name chef in Philly and, you know. Because you guys got along. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and he seemed like people, like regular people. I mean, what was he like? Exactly. Just a super sweet guy, really nice to work with, you know, funny and, you know, he, he had this reputation, I think, of just being very shy, very kind of uh, introverted. And not at all. You know, he just, you know, the place is so small and he just, I don't think, got a lot of public exposure at that time in Philly. So it was there was definitely an element of, of mystique and kind of intrigue. What are we talking about here? Like 2005? Six? Yeah, 2006, maybe 2005. Yeah. And uh, so, you know. And kept up a really great rapport with Michael Solomonov and and Mark as well. And at one point, Michael was like, "You know what? Um, Mark reached out to me. He's looking for somebody to uh, to work at his restaurant." I said, like, well, "What am I going to do at Vetri?" And I can't. A, I'm not qualified enough to be a server there. And uh, you know, well, you know, I have this desk job. I'm you know, customer service manager. This is cool. And he's like, "Well, it's not for a serving position. It's for manager of Vetri." I was like, "Come, come on, dude. I can't. You know, I can't." Work at Vetri, it's nonsense. So he's like, well, give him a call. Give him a call. Go down Because at talk the time, it was super hot. Exactly, like, yeah. It was getting national coverage. And- exactly. You know, Mario Batali had recently said that, you know, it could be the best restaurant, uh, best Italian restaurant in America. It'd be a great uh, piece from Alan Richmond and GQ saying kind of the same thing. So it was had a huge name and, you know, obviously just intimidated the hell out of me to even think about 
walking in there as a server, as anything, let alone going into apply as general manager. So Michael kept on me about it and said, you know, just go talk to them. Like, they're great people. They like you. And uh, so I ended up kind of breaking on it and I didn't think anything would come of it. But I went in and, and interviewed with Mark and uh, his business partner, Jeff Benjamin. What was that like? Great. You know, it's just it was actually through service. And uh, we sat down at a table in the restaurant, which, again, is, you know, a very, very tiny space, 30 seats. So we sat down and, and just talked, you know, and I, I was expecting a very hard-hitting interview and, you know, being quizzed on my wine knowledge and my service knowledge. But we really just hung out for half an hour, chatted, um, really got along. You know, it was just a nice, I think we had a glass of wine each and, you know, it was just a very, like an interview unlike any I've ever had. And uh, I think wine came up once maybe. They asked me, uh, you know, what I drank and I I think I said, you know, about American wine, you know, I like, you know, and I really was very, very So you didn't try to like fake it. You yeah. weren't like, oh, I'm all about the Italian. <laughs> What's that, a Tiganella? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, uh, I didn't make any pretenses, but I also didn't say, you know, listen, I don't know much about wine at all. And I'd been waiting tables for a while. I, you know, liked drinking wine, but I was very, very underqualified to, to be anywhere near a wine list like Vetri's or any serious wine list whatsoever. And uh, I think wine came up and I said, you know, I like American stuff. And he said, oh, I like Screaming Eagle. And I was like, well, no, you know, like I like, uh, you know, Bo Bogle Merlot or whatever. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they're like, A okay. little bit different price point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, kind of more for every day. <laughs> yeah. Screaming Eagle is like the once a week stuff, you know. Right. And uh, so it it didn't really come up, you know, wine wasn't really a, a part of the, the interview. and So you felt like they were just vibing you on the, as a person because exactly. they did hire you. So. Exactly. So, you know, I was hired after that. The interview went well and, you know, they brought me on and we sat down and they said, listen, this is, you know, I think kind of a whole new world for you. It's a whole new world for us. We're opening up a new restaurant in a couple of months, Osteria. Uh, so we're, we're going to be over there a lot. We need somebody to run this restaurant. We want it to be you, but, you know, it's going to... It's going to be kind of a crash course for you. you got to learn, you know, the way our restaurant works and you got to learn the wine list. And I was like, all right. Um, and I opened the wine list up and I was like, what the hell is this? You know, like 500 to 700. Yeah, because it's a pretty big list. Yeah, and Italian wines. And, you know, I actually, until that point, had a, a fair aversion to Italian wines. Just, you know, is that such, true? Too well, bitter? Just like such an impassable wall of you know, vast regions, different grapes, different yeah. names, unpronounceable things. And actually when I was working at a, a place before as a server, uh, you know, which is kind of like steakhouse -y wine list, you know, wine was a, a serious point there, but maybe service was more a part of it in terms of how you open the bottle, you know, taking care of the wine, taking care of the guest. Uh, and so, you know, questions on the wine list would be like, so what's better, the uh, Farniente or the Silver right. Oak? And it would be like, well, I don't understand. It. 97, bro. 97. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that time? Yeah, exactly. Just get to 97, Just man. Get, or it would be like, well, you know, I don't understand your question because clearly the Farniente is $200 and the Silver Oaks 150 so, <laughs> you know. I'm sorry, bro. That's hilarious. <laughs> so I don't understand, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> We've provided this information for you, sir. It's clear as day yeah. on the wine list. <laughs> and so, um, and so. Well, you, the Farniente does sound more Italian, doesn't it? <laughs> right, but so. <laughs> and so, 
you know, Mark essentially just sat me down and said, you got to you gotta just learn Italian wine. You know, it's not going to be easy, but, you know, we'll give you some books and we'll, we'll talk to you as much as you want about Italian wine. But you got a couple months really just to, to learn it. And I was like, okay, holy cow. You know, so I, so I started working there and it was immediately a lot. And, you know, um, immediately felt overwhelmed by everything in that restaurant. You know, it's a tiny place and, you know, had great service standards and, um, you know, a, a really established clientele and you know it's the first new hire there i think in maybe five years or so so and, uh, i mean did they ever pull you aside one day and be like you know we really didn't think you were gonna make it but you surprised us i mean like what, what eventually was, yeah. yeah what was the it you know it took some time i think they kind of had a, a a cocked eyebrow on me for a long long time and I, you know and, and truth be told i was really having a hard time with the wine thing for the first you know few weeks month or so it was you know, I started to feel just like totally underwater. And I was like, you know, what? well, all right, well, let me ground myself and I'll focus on things I can do. And, I, you know, I'd come from a service background, you know, kind of more four-star places. And I'm like, all right, you know, I'll be like a service drill sergeant, service captain, just make sure everything's tight there. And it's like, I know cheese, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll make sure they have an awesome cheese card at all times, you know, get into cheese education with the staff, you know, and I use the... And you, you, you focus on your strength. Exactly. And, you know, and actually, and that kind of turns out that, you know, would really be all over, you know, it's been too much time with this mahogany cheese cart that they had. And uh, within my first week, maybe 10 days being there, I was cleaning it and uh, I knocked the uh, the glass case. It was like a Pyrex case off the top of the cheese cart and broke it. Oh, sweet. You know, so I was like, all right, so maybe, you know, none of this is going right. That's yeah. my, my one strength cheese and I just jacked up the cheese cart. Were you and, upset? Uh, you were like, where's the Cashel Blue? <laughs> right. I do not see anything from County Cork on this. I made sure it was 90% Irish. just like Irish. shoved it. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, so I really, I was just feeling underwater and, you know, and one point. So what got you through that? I mean, because clearly you're doing great. It all came together. How does it, what, what, what did you find as a basis that pulled you through? So, you know, I think there was a, a moment where Jeff Benjamin, you know, the owner got ran the front of the house and, you know, still runs a lot of the front of house departments at all four restaurants and Mark's business partner kind of, I think, picked up, you know, that I wasn't getting the wine thing as much, you know, as I was dialed into the service thing. And I, you know, was really working to, to make sure that, you know, things were as smooth as possible at the restaurant actually kind of enhanced the way they were doing reservations and, you know, kind of struck a chord with them there and figured out a way to do a little bit more business. And so those things were working in my favor. And, but the wine thing, I think Jeff picked up that it wasn't clicking with me. And I think, you know, after service one night, he was like, sorry, tell me about this wine. And I was like, uh, you know, it's a cool crisp white. And, you know, I kind of came clean and I was like, you know what, I don't, I don't know that much about it. I'm having a really hard time connecting with these. And he's like, well, well, let me tell you about it. This this is a wine uh, that's grown on maybe the highest altitude vineyard in Europe. It's like 3,300 meter, or 3,300 feet, 1,000 meters. And I was like, oh, wow, that's that's really cool. You know, and he's like, it's from uh, the Alto Adige region. And uh, it's called uh, Tiefenbrunner, uh, Muller Turgau, uh, Feldmarschall. Feldmarschall. <laughs> Feldmarschall. Uh, Von Fenner zu Fenberg. And I was like, well, come on, man, give me a break. Like, right. you know, I'm trying to, that doesn't make any sense to me. What, this is a German wine and, you know, I don't get it. And, you know, I'm just trying to figure out the Italian stuff. And he's like, well, it's not. It's, here's another fact. It's from a region where, you know, it's all the way up in the foothills of the Alps against super high altitude and it borders with Austria. And, you know, Italians here speak German. They wear lederhosen, you know, they eat sausage. They, you know, they have a very Germanic lifestyle. And I was like, well, that, 
that's really awesome too, you know? And so I just, I think that kind of detail. And Did those he pull of, it in in the international relations way in a way? Almost like maybe yeah. without even thinking about it? Exactly. You know, and he just gave that line a story that I'd never connected with. You know, I'd been reading books and I'd been reading about, all right, this grape has this acidity and this tannin and this name. And that stuff was just falling that flat was with falling me. flat. You couldn't yeah. find some place to hang that information. Exactly. And so that was, you know, I think the connection for me was like, you know, all these wines have an element of story geography geography history history. politics you know whatever culture and uh that really clicked with me and then it was like every other wine it was like all right so manzio campagnoni sparkling wine all chardonnay you know takes a long time to make it but this guy's mark vetri's friend and the reason that we sell it in philadelphia is because mark lived there and visited him and you know came back here and said hey I, i really want my friend's wines in philadelphia and and, you know, that was a connection for me on that one. And, you know, that was the moment I think I realized not only could I get the wine thing, but that I could really enjoy doing that and really dig myself into the wine world. And so now you're the beverage director for the whole group. How did that progression move along? I mean, did you find yourself training the staff a little bit or what What? What brought you through? Exactly. So we had, uh, you know, plenty of opportunity to do educational things at Vetri, you know, small staff, you know, maybe four servers, a busser that's been there since we opened. And, uh, you know, so we would have some wine classes and um, Vetri was even at that time, very food pairing uh, heavy. We would do tasting menus and we would do uh, really incredible wine pairings, you know, open up a bunch of cool things. And so, you know, the service staff knowing wine is, you know, a good amount and, you know, almost as much as I did was very important to the restaurant running smoothly. So, I really got into the idea of kind of sharing those connections that I had with wine and especially with guests too, you know, being able to have somebody light up with a wine, you know, kind of hearing something that sparked a connection for them. You know, you guys were in Capri, you know, taste this wine. It comes from not far from there. Or, you know, you guys were in Venice, like they drink this there all the time. And, you know, making those connections with guests kind of got me more into that educational side and learning more and more of those details. Were you into hearing from guests about where they were from and why they'd come to the restaurant? Totally. And Vetri, I think, is unlike, you know, almost any restaurant in the country where it's so small and it has a reputation that people come there ready to fall in love with it. You know, people walk in the door excited to hear about you, excited to hear about the food. You know, there's very few places like that. And I actually, as I enhanced my role in the Vetri family and and moved into more of a beverage director and started, you know, working wine service on the floor at Osteria and then Amis, I had to realize that that wasn't the outside world. You know, that wasn't every other sure. restaurant. People come in and you walk up to a table at a busy restaurant and say, hey, all right, let me tell you about the wine list. And they're like, who are you and why are you here? I got it. And, uh, you know, so Vetri kind of gave me, afforded me a, a lot of opportunities to connect with people and really, really dig into that element of guest uh, experience. But, you know, I kind of had to reel myself back a little bit once we got into the other restaurants. Um, but so Osteria opened right when I started at Vetri. And uh, within a... Seemed like a big success. Yeah, yeah, did really well from the get-go. And um, within about a year and a half, I think there was an opportunity for me to kind of start getting involved with the wine list there and education there. And, you know, on the same tip, I'd been teaching classes at Vetri and, you know, figured why not teach classes at Osteria. And, um, you know, that wine list had different selections on it that were, you know, fun to dig into as well and learn more about. And uh, so we had Osteria open, I guess, maybe... 
two years and we decided to open another place called Amis. And at that point, you know, I kind of was right in line to move into that role as beverage director proper and design that list. And it's my first time ever putting together like a wine list. And, you know, Amis is a Roma Trattoria, so really casual, really simple with just a heavy focus on wines by the glass, especially with a little bit more of a nod to maybe like central and southern Italian wines. And uh, I thought it was well done with the decor. I'd done there recently. It oh, seemed cool. like You're someone done. had spent some time like making it look nicer than it needed to necessarily look by bare bones. Yeah, how come you, know? how come you don't say hi when you come into town, Levy? What's it was up? it wasn't like that. It was <laughs> it was very not planned kind of situation. You had but, a good time. Uh, uh, yeah, we did. It was nice, nice. And awesome. I, I, one of the things I really liked about it was the beverage selection. Actually, oh so, cool. I fished for that one. Thank you. No, <laughs> it's entirely true. So uh, you know. Let's talk a little bit about Philly, a little bit. So what's the, what's the scene there? Because I hear about the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board and restaurants having to pick up their own wine for delivery. And I mean, how does it all actually work? All right. So it's a very intense process. And it's something we've learned to live with. And it's something that I think is maybe that much harder, uh, much more of a burden because things are so different, so nearby in New Jersey, you know couple miles across the bridge. It is a totally open state. New York, you know, which is where a lot of our, our guests come from to, to Vetri are, are used to seeing wine lists that are, are built in a, in a free state system for, for liquor, wine, beer, everything. Where you can have auctions and you can have old exactly. vintages. And- yep. And uh, so that makes it, I think, a little bit more of a rub. Um, but, you know, we, we've kind of learned how to, to stomach the system, but basically the way it goes is any interaction with a uh, an importer, wine rep, is I think probably the same as it would be for you here in New York, where it's very direct. You know, uh, a wine rep will come around and, and taste you on a wine and say, all right, great, I like it, I'll order three cases. And then from that point, there's a little bit of a disconnect in that the state becomes involved directly as kind of a middleman. So rather than the uh, wine importing companies send me a case of wine directly to the restaurant, they would sell it to the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board, the PLCB, deliver it to their store. And then the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board would mark it up uh, to usually about 50, 60 percent markup on top of what would be, I guess, wholesale in New Jersey or New York. Wow. So so we pay (laughs) immediately 50 to 60 percent above, you know, uh, neighboring markets. And uh, beyond that, it's a state-run system. So it's, it's a little bit tricky to work the ins and outs of it because it's not people working in the wine world that want to be there necessarily. It's people who have state jobs and are looking for security and, you know, not necessarily interested in learning much about wine or um, talking to you about, you know, different regions or, um, and it's, you know, can be pretty brusque customer service. And uh, so with that, there's a demand that you come and pick up the wine as a restaurateur so you have to like um, send out a truck to go pick up your own wine. Exactly. And you have to pay COD when you get there. Wow. And you have to take the wine off the premises right then. And and you probably want to because it's usually hanging out in like an 85 degree back office. That sounds <laughs> and, all, uh, all around pretty sweet. <laughs> it's a great setup. Um, and, I, you know, I should tread lightly maybe more than I am because it's a system we, we work with and you know the, the guys actually at our store you know we've developed a great relationship with and they help us out and you know they're kind of up against it as much as we are I feel you know anybody with an interest in wine usually just cuts right out of that system and goes to another state to work you know in Delaware or New Jersey or but New York. But there are big wine restaurants like Savona. Totally. And- 
is in there and stuff. I mean, so somehow people build big lists. Yeah, and so uh, you know, all the wine kind of channels through one direct uh, one avenue, and I think that means that there's a wide selection and there's a lot of business being done. And that means there are great wines available in PA and great people working in that market. Uh, you mentioned Savoni and Melissa Monasoff was a master sommelier in the area that has since moved to Texas, I believe, but built an incredible wine program out there. And, uh, you know, there's lots of really, really incredible, serious wine professionals that that deal with the Pennsylvania system. Um, but it can be tricky. And the, probably my favorite thing about it all is... So there's that markup, that 50, 60%, and you have to come pick it up and you have to pay COD. And for every single bottle on your invoice, you pay anywhere between $1.50 to $3 in freight for that bottle as you know a, a charge that they've incurred from the uh, distributor that they're passing on to you. They don't even mask it. They don't even like work it into the price. It's like, all right, here's your bottle. And then it's $3 on top of that bottle for you to come pick it up. <laughs> and is, is that part of the reason why there is a lot of BYOB in Philly? Yeah, it's a huge part of it. It's, you know, it's it's difficult to get a liquor license. It's difficult to just deal with that system. And uh, the B- BYOB scene in Philly, I think is maybe among the strongest in the country as a result. You know, it's great restaurants, people without maybe the money to, to get into a liquor license and maybe uh, without, you know, a, a wine professional, incredible chefs can open up a small place and do really well and serve amazing food and kind of cut out that whole uh, rigmarole and not deal with it as much. And uh, it means there's a, a really cool scene for BYOBs, but at the same time, it, it, it means that maybe more people than other markets lose a connection with a wine list in a restaurant setting, which is, it, you know, breaks my heart a little bit to know that there are a lot of people out there that have wine collections that will never go to a restaurant in Philadelphia that has a wine list because, you know. And they, and, and what that means is they're probably not being turned on to things that they don't know already, at least exactly. not at the restaurant level, maybe exactly. at retail. But. And just losing that interaction with a, a wine steward, somebody who's there to enhance an experience and make a connection. And So is that part of the brushback that you find at places like Ami, where they're like, what are you again? What is your role? Like Exactly. You know, you know and, and you, you know that happens a good amount. I think that, that a BYOB uh, maven, you know, somebody who's into going to those restaurants, will be out with another group and you know, make themselves apparent very quickly with, why does this wine cost so much? Why is this wine $65 when I can get it in New York for 11 or, you know, and I think that's one of the the big hurdles. With How many times do you hear that at night? A lot. And, you know, it's a shame again with the, the New York market because we have lots of people who come down to see us from New York and we're, we're thrilled that they make the trip. And it's hard for me to serve a wine like Abbazia de Novocella Kerner for $68 on my list when it's $45 in New York, yeah. you know, and and things like that can be really difficult. And, you know, and every once in a while somebody opens up the conversation where you're able to explain it, but the majority of time people they just, just look at They just think you're it hosing as, them. Exactly. And they blame you personally. Yeah, exactly. That's always fun. Yep. And... <laughs> But I mean, is that also part of the reason that beer is kind of big? Because it's lower price point, so less of that kind of carries through. Because I feel like Belgian beer outside of the Monk's Cafe influence is big in Philly, yeah, right? The, I think. The beer world is huge in Philly. And I think it has been for a long time as a direct result of people like Tom Peters and Monk's Cafe and people like Memphis Taproom, Brendan Hartraft, just great beer personalities, beer personas in the city that have made an effort to get great beers available there. Um and you're right, things are a little bit more affordable. They're a little bit less 
affected by the Pennsylvania setup. You can get beer delivered directly. And oh, you can? You can, yeah, yeah. So beer's a little bit different where you, have, you do have to pay COD when it gets there, but, you know, basically the distributors just handle it on their own. And a lot in a lot of ways, I find the beer market, and I've, I've actually gotten a really great firsthand experience with this over the last nine months. We opened up a beer restaurant called Alaspina. Oh, congratulations. And, uh, thanks. Uh, so it, it's kind of our take on, you know, an Italian pub. And, uh, and it, it's Italian beer or what kind of beers? Lots of Italian beer, um, maybe like five six italian drafts at any one time out of out of 20 Do but then lots of like local that that's a growing category in america or is that italian craft beer it's been huge and again the philly market is really established in the beer world the beer community there is very savvy they have a great kind of iq for beer lists and you know a lot of them are collectors on their own seek out rare beer bottles will be much more willing i think than a lot of the, the philadelphia wine market to take a chance on something that costs, you know, $30 on a list and just try it out and something they've read about. And so a really, really educated beer uh, market, which is fun to work in. Um, but the Italian beer scene, even with the most geekiest of beer geeks, is definitely uncharted territory. And it's it's because it's so new, you know, and there's, there's very little of it around. But there's this, been this great burgeoning Italian craft scene in the last 15 years or so in Italy that's exploded and uh the tail musos of the world exactly the, yeah ballad kind of stuff exactly ballad beers del borgo del ducado and just you know a whole world of incredible brewers and those beers are you know there's very little information out there about them they're very hard to get and again even the most diehard beer fans are just starting to come around to them just start, and they're they can be prohibitively expensive too so you know maybe they're not everybody's first choice but we're in a lucky position i think to have access to a lot of those and and uh, have an opportunity to connect with the beer world by showing them something new and uh, you know, building relationships with those Italian brewers too. They come to see us in Philly and they're, they're awesome guys and you know, devoted to beer and you know, always have this kind of maverick sense about them. And, uh, but yeah, we're lucky to have that, that beer scene in Philly that's already kind of done a lot of our work. They know beer, they're into beer and just excited to taste new things. Because, you know, so we do the show in New York and it seems like, uh, you know, every week we can get a sommelier on the show from the New York area and there's just a lot of them. But, I mean, I don't know. How many sommeliers are there in Philly, in in Pennsylvania in general? I mean, are, are there many? Are there few? Who is there? I don't know. What's the scene like? The landscape has changed dramatically. I've seen a, a real shift probably within the last four or five years where I think, you know, whereas before maybe like in the... The early 2000s, there were a handful, maybe two, three, like, wine personalities in the city. Lately, it seems like there's been a big influx of people who take wine lists really seriously, sommeliers from other areas that come to Philly to work in that market because it's such an exciting food community. I think because there are so many great restaurants, great chefs, that, you know, it just makes sense to to have wine personalities, uh, you know, people who can put together a really interesting beverage list. And you see that more in Philly now where people that are involved in the beverage scene or are involved in the beverage scene entirely. They have a great wine list, but also great beer list, great cocktails, really interesting non-alcoholic options. And uh, so I'd say, you know, whereas before there were just a handful of sommeliers, people that would be considered a, a, a wine personality, there are, you know, dozens now, people that really come to Philly. And, and it's made the scene that much more exciting. You see, you know, more tastings going on, more exchanging of ideas, more exciting wines coming into the state. Whereas before, you know, it would be if we really wanted a wine five years ago at Vetru, we'd talk to an importer and be like, you know, I know you guys sell in New York. 
a vetri we can sell maybe a case a year. Will you sell us some? Now, you know, you have this whole uh, crew of younger sommeliers who are fighting to get, you know, fighting to steal your allocations from New York, essentially. <laughs> so what is the changing, or is there a change in the Italian wine market in, in that market in terms of Philly? I mean, is, are people still into the Piemonte Tuscany thing, that kind of access, or you know, are they moving to different regions, or what's, what's the reality of what sells? Well, Italy's funny, again, and you know, a lot of the reason that I had a hard time connecting with it, I think, is probably a sentiment that's shared by most people getting into wine is just, it's so vast. It's so unrecognizable up front. You know, on its face, it's just a tough region to get a hold of. And uh, so we're fortunate where we're in a position to, to kind of walk people through that. Um, and to me, you know, Italy is the most vast, most exciting uh, wine region in the world. And, you know, maybe I'm pigeonholed a little bit because our lists are, are mainly Italian. Um, but it's exciting to have that opportunity to to make a connection with somebody based on the fact that they don't know the list, that they're, you know, looking to maybe try something new. So I think, you know, Barolo, Barbaresco, Tuscany, things like that are just starting to become part of people's kind of everyday wine vocabulary. Okay. And, uh, you know, so those are, are big parts of our list. We do a lot with that. But again, in that position to to just talk to people about something they probably don't have a lot of familiarity with means that we can get into, you know, different regions, things that are really exciting for us, things that you wouldn't see as much on Italian wine lists, things from Friuli, Le Marche, Southern Italy, Emilia Romagna, just all over, you know, things that don't maybe pop up as much in a wine spectator or a, a magazine like that. And so you find, I'm amazed that anybody has any connection to an Italian wine when they come into the restaurant. Somebody knows Barolo, I'm floored a little bit, you know, and I know they've maybe read it in a magazine or done some research on their own. Um, but it's a, a tough region to get a hold of. And so, you know, we, we just try to consider ourselves stewards and walking people through that list and trying to, to find something they can connect with in the Italian world. And hopefully they'll leave and, and be like, all right, well, Italian wines make great stuff. And when I think back to why I had an aversion to Italian wine, it was because I bought a, uh, a Barolo when I was, I don't know, 22, 23. And I remember I was working at one of those steakhouse-like places. And, I, you know, we were working, at, a friend and, and myself were working at Double. And we thought, you know what, we can take a cut tonight. If we make like maybe 50 bucks each for lunch, we'll just leave. We'll buy a couple of really cool bottles of wine. We'll splurge and we'll, uh, we'll go home, just take the night off, drink some really cool wine. And so we, we hit the $50 mark. We took the cut for service. We went and bought, I remember like a Stag's Leap SLV, something like that, and a, uh, a Barolo from 2000. And at that point, it was like Wine Spectator just said 2000 Barolo. Perfect vintage. Greatest thing. 100, 100 points. 100 vintage. points. Yeah. Greatest wine of all time. Get yourself some. Drink it. Hold it. Just stock up on 2000 Barolo. And so Are you went, saying that you didn't necessarily hold it, though? <laughs> I didn't. So I, got, I, you know, I, I ignored the hold part. We bought a, a 2000 Barolo. I brought it home. And what year it. was this? <laughs> it was like 2003. Yeah. Know, so just released, like right off the shelf. And uh, maybe 2004. Four, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. And, uh, no, it's, it's fine. And uh, so we uh, get it home, open it up, and I drank it. And I was, what is this? And I felt, I felt like the wine was mad at me. I was like, this, right, is, right. this is causing me pain. It's like, you know, like I'm at the doctor's office and this, you know, 
they vacuumed out everything in my mouth and then rubbed it down with sandpaper and I just don't get it. Like, this is awful. You know, that's so a terrible first, you know, kind of Barolo experience for me. And I, I shelved it, you know, until I got to Vetri and never really got into that. So if someone were to do that today, if someone were to go to retail and buy a current vintage Barolo, what would you say to that person to better enjoy the wine, I guess, would be the question I'd have now. Yeah, well, I think, again, for me, it's about connecting with some element of the history in that wine and the story behind that wine and, you know, how people revere that wine in Piedmont and what it is to the winemakers that make it. You know, when you're in Barolo proper, you know, they're not popping those wines open to drink them every single day. You know, they're special wines to them and things that they consider worthy of age. And, you know, so I think if you... If you know to revere the wines a little bit more like that in, in a way that I obviously glossed over when I tasted my first one. Um, but I think also, you know, the American palate, and, and you guys know this as wine professionals, is is very averse to, to tannin, to acid, to earth, um, to things that are maybe driven a little bit more by aromatics than, than oomph. And, uh, you know, so usually when we talk Barolo at the restaurants, if somebody seems, you know, uninitiated and interested in tasting it, these days I think Barolo affords a lot of modern options to kind of give somebody more of what they want. Um, But it's always fun to talk about, you know, what Italian wine is in a very quick way and just say, you know, acid, tannin, earth, history, you know, uh, those kind of things are important to think about when drinking these wines. And you hope that sticks with somebody. Have you had a chance to get to Italy much? A little bit, you know, I've probably taken four trips or so through mm-hmm. my tenure at, at Vetri uh, to Rome to do some research for Alspina, to Friuli, uh, once with, actually with Bobby Stuckey, and you have the Frasca shirt. He's awesome. He's yes. Greatest yeah, that's guy true. of all time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, I wear the shirt a lot. Actually, it's, it, uh, it's always a question, should I wear the terroir t-shirt or the Frasca t-shirt? Like, it's a, it's a little bit of a standoff yeah, there right. in the house. <laughs> um, and you know, Bobby is every, I think, wine person's major crush in this industry. He's a great guy. And, and so I was lucky enough to go to Friuli with him and Lachlan, uh, his chef partner, and uh, to Le Marque, Abruzzo, uh, um, Umbria. So I've been lucky enough to s- see some things in Italy. How did that brush off on you? I mean, what, what did you really take from that, that that would make sense to people who maybe haven't been? You know, I think how small every operation is that you deal with. You know, you see a wine on a list, you see it on a shelf, and you expect, you know, I think it's sometimes hard to make that connection to where it's really coming from. And when you go to Italy and you see a winemaker and you see that they have a handful of barrels in their cellar and, you know, they're hand labeling their cases to go out for shipment. And, you know, there's three people on the vineyard. Um, those type of things, I think, really resonate with me as, you know, this is, you know, the the ocean between us kind of separates, you know, that association with really the fact that these are craftspeople, you know, they're artisans, and they're making things very, very small scale and with a lot of love and attention. And when you see it just kind of packaged on a shelf, I think you don't always get that connection. So to me, it's obviously a great advantage to get to go to Italy and and walk vineyards and make those connections and hopefully pick up these little bits of stories, you know, personalities to the wine that'll sound fun when they're explained to a guest. So you've been in Italy, you've been in Philadelphia, you've drunk some wine. What's what's your favorite drinking story? Favorite drinking story? Ooh, well, if we go maybe back to Brussels, plenty of drinking stories there. And I kind of built up a little bit of an aversion to Belgian beer towards the end of that trip just because I'd done so much. I drank every single Belgian beer I could. And... uh 
we went out for uh, one of the Irish guys in the Parliament's uh, birthday parties to, uh, you know, the one Irish pub in Brussels. And this is when I was, you know, felt pretty invincible about drinking. You know, I hadn't really experienced a hangover yet. And I discovered that I had, a, a, I think, you know, fairly high capacity for drinking without ever feeling drunk. You know? I thought that was on the passport. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. birthday, nationality, you know. <laughs> oh, Irish. Oh, okay. You can serve them two more. It's fine. Yep. And so that towards the end of my stay there, uh, and actually my brother happened to be in town the same uh, week where it was this guy's birthday and my brother and I were slated to go to uh, Strasbourg as part of the parliament trip. He was along for the ride and then we were going to go to Switzerland afterwards. And uh, so we went out for this Irish guy's birthday uh, the night before we were due to leave. And I swear, I think I had my, my brother, you know, was quite a drinker around then too. And I swear I probably had 25 Guinnesses. Really? And it was, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I was proud of myself for, for drinking that much beer as a young, foolhardy idiot. Any drinking and, songs after? Did yeah. you do the song thing? Yep, exactly. So, yeah, and the Irish drinking thing is, you know, pretty stereotypical, but, you know, a lot of uh, Irish crooners made themselves apparent in the, uh, you know, in the bar that night. And uh, my brother and I just, I don't even remember what happened. And I remember faintly, like, 6, 7 a.m. that next morning, just like walking towards the train station without any of the bags that we planned to take on our trip and, you know, getting, <laughs> getting to, you know, I think catching every single train, every single connection within a minute and then just sleeping for like a day when we got to Strasbourg. I think I missed every, you know, parliament meeting I was supposed to have that day. And uh, yeah, so I think that was kind of on the tail end of my Belgian experience and kind of I'd been like, all right, I'm over Belgian beer for a little bit. And then very quickly over Irish beer and Guinness specifically for probably until recently, probably <laughs> took about 10 years to, to reacquire the taste. Steve Wilde on the show today of the Vetri Family Restaurants in Philadelphia. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Levy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.